This archival program of Design Matters with Debbie Millman was produced for Voice America Internet Radio. New programs with better audio quality are now being produced for Design Observer. You can subscribe in the iTunes Store or at the Observer Media Channel on Design Observer. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, the show that takes you inside the provocative and stimulating world of design and branding as it intersects with contemporary culture. Here's your host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Several weeks ago, I was invited to join some friends for a girls' night out. Despite the fact that I'm not much of a girl about town, let alone a girls' night out girl about town, Despite the fact that the majority of the women invited were a good ten years younger than me, and despite the fact we were congregating at a beer house and I don't drink beer, I agreed to go. I did this primarily because I genuinely liked the very sweet woman who organized the outing, and one of the other invitees was a designer I deeply admire and hadn't seen in some time. When I go out, I often feel a pervasive sense of discomfort. Albeit my gregarious and outgoing nature, I really hate small talk. I don't enjoy standing around, drink in hand, asking people silly little inconsequential questions about inconsequential minutiae. I have a near pathological disdain for shooting the breeze, and an even harder time endlessly chit-chatting about any and all of the following. The weather, baby showers, dieting, engagement rings, office politics, American politics, traffic, vacations, summer homes, sports, airport security, and rent control. But I often find myself engaged in these types of conversations because this is what is polite and expected, and I don't want to seem rude or unsocial. But deep down, even when it might seem otherwise, I have a hard time believing that I fit into most social situations. Despite decades of analysis, I often feel that my clothes are unkempt, or my hair is too frizzy or too flat, or my ideas are half-baked or all wrong. So it was with a bit of trepidation that I made my journey into this girls' night out, which became even more challenging when I found out en route that the designer I was eager to see wasn't feeling well and was no longer joining us. I forlornly tapped out a text message to another friend. How can I go without her, was my plea. And in an attempt to console me, he responded by questioning whether I really had to go. And of course, I knew I did. Didn't everyone? This was the third cardinal rule of girlfriends. The first cardinal rule is, as everyone knows, You can't go out with your friend's ex, ever. The second cardinal rule is, as everyone knows, you can't break a date with a girlfriend for a boy, ever. And finally, the third cardinal rule is, as everyone knows, you can't cancel a night out with the girls at the last minute because the only person you feel comfortable with can no longer make it. So, of course, I went anyway. What is it really that connects people? Why do we feel safe and secure and loved by some people and judged or ostracized by others? Is it about common values? Is it about shared assumptions? I often think that people have invisible antennas that secretly start signaling when you meet someone with this mysterious mutuality. 
and then suddenly you find yourself in the midst of a you know that they know that you know that they know mutuality. And that's when the real fun begins. Sometimes mutuality takes time to take hold. Many years ago in my sophomore year of college, I found myself living in a dorm with a group of girls that seemed to be everything I wasn't. Light and breezy and happy, and they all looked great in tight Jordache jeans and torn 80s rock and roll t-shirts. We were six Jewish girls living together in three bedrooms, a yellow kitchenette, and a tiny one-shower bathroom. My roommate, Aileen, was a petite woman with cascading black curls, a thick Long Island accent, bad posture, and a lukewarm demeanor. I tried to settle into a life there and decorated one side of my shared bedroom with Roger Dean's Yes posters and a well-worn copy of Robert Maplethorpe's famous photograph of Patti Smith, whose evident armpit hair confused them at best. The first few weeks were fairly agonizing. Aileen tried to include me in their outings and antics, but I made myself scarce in the suite and instead found myself spending time with a group of grateful deadheads I had met in the college record store. And when a room opened up in the dilapidated, dingy house they were renting off campus, I jumped at the chance to move in. I joyfully told my sweetmates I was leaving, and only Aileen seemed glum. I packed up my things, I took down my treasured Patti Smith photo, and as I pulled my posters off of the wall, Aileen started to cry. It had never occurred to me that she too might have felt like an outsider, and my moving out only further cemented her already fragile center. I suddenly felt awful and promised I would come by to visit her and we would do something special. Weeks went by and I got consumed with my new friends. We started a band and I found myself in a heady world I'd only dreamed about. I felt included and I felt understood and I felt happy. Every couple of days, I would remind myself to go and visit Aileen, and then the days would come and go, and I'd put off visiting for another day. Finally, we made a date for breakfast, and I gallantly insisted on bringing fresh muffins and biscuits over to her and the sweet. The morning of our meeting, I accidentally overslept, and by the time I got to the bakery, it was threadbare. I picked out a few misshapen rolls, jumped on the bus, and made my way over to the campus. By the time I got to the dorm, all but one girl was gone. When I asked for Aileen, the girl shook her head. She had to go to class, she said, with the slightest sliver of contempt. You're too late. As I walked back to the bus, I berated myself for being late, and I hated myself for being utterly selfish. Twenty-five years later, I'm still ashamed of my behavior, and despite my best efforts, I still find that I forget that I live in a world where other people worry about fitting in and being comfortable and being liked. But I'm trying to change that. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is Laurie Rosenwald. Before we get started with our interview, please let me tell you a bit more about her. Laurie Rosenwald considers herself the world's most commercial artist. She is the principal of Rosenworld.com. The studio's areas of expertise include drawing, graphic design, and typography, as well as book jackets, packaging, posters, portraits, and animation. Lori also does graphic design for IKEA, animation for the Sundance Channel, and drawings for The New Yorker. 
Her children's book, and to name but just a few, Red, Yellow, Green, Blue, was published by Blue Apple Books, and Scholastic Parent and Child named it as one of the best books of 2007. Her book, New York Notebook, was published by Chronicle, and it's a hyper-illustrated, over-designed guidebook, sketchbook, and blank book, all mixed up together. She is currently working on a new book with the best title I have ever heard of for any book ever. It is called, All the Wrong People Have Self-Esteem. Welcome, Lori. Hi. Hi. It's so good to have you here. I've been having a lot of fun living in the Laurie Rosenworld world over the last week. And um, on your site, which people can, if they want to go see her work right away, www.rosenworld, R-O-S-E-N-W-O-R-L-D.com, I recently read that you said, when I was young, I was insecure. Now I'm old and insecure. It's much better. <laughs> That's right. So, so why is that? Why is it much better to be old and insecure? Well, frankly, I think I said that just to be funny. I say a lot of things that I think will be amusing. Sometimes it works, sometimes not. But it is true. It, so I mean, I think most people are insecure. I think everybody's in insecure. Don't That's you? My, my, well, I yeah. think you're, the only the only two people I think who are an insecure at this point in my life are Milton Glaser and Massimo Vignelli, uh-huh. and, I, and I I really attribute that to their being in their seventies. <laughs> so. Something to look forward to. <laughs> yeah, being secure in your seventies. Maybe, maybe. So, what are you insecure about? Why are you insecure? You're fabulous. You're so talented. You have books. You have you're an illustrator. You're a writer. You're a designer. You're a world traveler. What's to be insecure about? Oh, do go on. (laughs) No, um, well, um, I sort of consider myself a professional outsider. I mean, I go to AIGA events, and to a certain extent, I feel like part of the design world. But then to another extent, I feel like I'm always fighting and struggling to get projects to, to really happen, and I'm not really connected like maybe I should be by this, you know, advanced age. But I sort Advanced of made, age. Well, not like whatever. <laughs> well, I'm working on it. But um, no, I just I feel like I'm also privileged because I'm more free. I work on my own. I don't really answer to anyone. Um, a lot of the projects that I do are mm, they, they don't really fit into any particular. There's cert- I don't get asked to do big corporate jobs, and I sort of used to want things like that to make a lot of money. But it looks like I never will. And that's a certain kind of freedom, too. Mm-hmm. It seems to be enough so I can go to fancy restaurants, and that's all I care about. Well, I know that you wrote that nobody has ever asked you to design a pizza box. Has that ever been an aspiration? Actually, they did. Oh, they did? It was incredibly, it, it was fortuitous. I was um, asked to do the generic main pizza box for Domino, and I couldn't believe it because when I was growing up, my parents were very arty. My father was a sculptor, and my mother was a, well, I'm not sure what she was, but she was very arty. And I, you know, always wanted to do something more populist, more democratic. I thought it was sort of selfish to become an artist. And Why? You know, Why is that? Well, because a lot of artists, certainly people that my family knew, and including my father, were not particularly successful. A lot of them were alcoholics. It was just sort of asking for trouble to be an artist with a capital A. Mm -hmm. So I liked the idea of being a commercial artist, being a designer, because at that point I thought of it as being some kind of more... 
user-friendly. You know, you didn't have to have gone to the right schools or speak this, the right art speak mm -hmm. to appreciate it. And I had and have a lot of disdain for fine art, particularly contemporary fine art. Um, and I thought it was good to do something that was useful. And I also like the idea of designing garbage, <laughs> you know, because... Oh, yeah, I've made a well, really good career out I, of that. I, it's true. I mean, I learned that when once I lived in this six-floor walk-up. This is a long time ago. And I got seltzer delivered from Marty, the seltzer man. Mm. And he had a really great answering machine. It was, um, maybe, this is Marty, maybe you want some seltzer, uh, east side Monday, Wednesday, west side th uh, Tuesday, Thursday. And then you can leave a message when you hear the sound of seltzer splashing. Oh, and it was so great. Anyway, he the first time he came to the apartment, I was working... When you open the door, it was in my quote-unquote studio, which is tiny, you know, room. And he said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm working. And he said, what do you do? And I said, I'm a designer. And he said, what do you design, paper? <laughs> and I, I looked around, and without realizing that, I was sitting in like this sea of, you know, there was Colorade, there was Trace on the windows, there was drawing paper. I was just sitting in this huge, you know, hill of paper. Of different kinds and I said yeah I design paper you know and it's very especially lately when I moved I had you know always asked my clients you know I would do a poster in Japan in 1985 and I said like, you have to send me five of those posters I do a t-shirt in Italy you must send me a bunch of t-shirts so I had this huge archive of all the work I ever did you know book jackets and whatever and then I basically threw it all out wow. last year because I moved and I don't think I'm going to have a retrospective at MoMA. And what's it for? I mean, I have certain things. I didn't throw away everything, but I threw away maybe seven-eighths of everything. And it was a great feeling because the only thing that matters is are you enjoying what you're doing right this second? Because if you want to live forever, you know, if you want um, return, you know, you can do a sculpture in bronze mm -hmm. if you really want that permanent feeling. But at least, you know, for me, um, if you do a post, it's good to have that kind of perspective that it should be something that's amusing and fun while people look at it, and then it's garbage. It's fish wrap, and I like to know that. Now, I, I want to come back to something that you said um, about having a, a real disdain for fine art, but before we, we do that, I want to ask you about why you threw everything away last year. You moved. So you moved from a loft that you'd lived in on Lisbonard Street for nearly three decades. Yeah. And when I asked you before where where you live now, you said that you don't live anywhere. You're homeless. And so I wanted to, I didn't want to hear any more details at that point. I wanted to wait till we were on the air so we could have a full-on conversation about this because it sounded so intriguing to me. So you're homeless right yes, now. Yes, but in a good way. But first, I realized that I'd totally forgotten about the pizza thing. That since my parents were so arty and I came from this very arty and cultured family, I had this really romantic idea of graphic design that you would be doing something so totally populist, you mm. know. So I had this fantasy that I would do the world's loveliest pizza box, you know, and give people art where they didn't expect it. Instead That's of walking wonderful. into a gallery, mm -hmm. they get the pizza and it would be there. So I was thrilled when it was with J. Walter Thompson asked me to do a pizza box. Yeah, about just out of the blue, why would J. Walter Thompson decide that Laurie Rosenwald is the woman to call for the pizza box? I have no idea. None. I, I mean, they wanted to. They yeah. just, they thought they wanted to go arty, and then of course they changed their mind and killed it. 
Um, but for a moment, a brief moment, I had my dream was fulfilled. But do you still have. I have did more. You throw away the comp. Did you throw away the design? Well, it's in. You know what? Like a lot of things, it's in my computer. And what does that mean? What will that mean 10 years from now to be a digital file? I never print anything out anymore. Right. So that's even more ephemeral. You don't even have the paper. It's just information. And we could have a whole, you probably know more than I do about what happens to those digi blots, you know, 10 yeah. years from now. Who knows? I wonder what I wonder what Morty, the seltzer man, would ask you now about what you were designing if he came in and saw you over the computer monitor. Yeah, I could, I could really say nothing. Right? And, yeah, I mean, it's... Whatever, I don't like the things that are on the internet now or I was talking to some students and I said, you know, those external hard drives that are on our desk with all the stuff stored in them, you know, I can imagine a conversation, you know, not just 10, but two years from now, people laugh and go, you remember we had those big, you know, bricks on our desk, yeah, you know, big drives. <laughs> remember that, you know, because it's going to be something else. Yeah. Um, so, yes. But anyway, about the homeless thing. I moved after 26 years on Lispenard Street, had this big loft, and then I moved, and then I went to Sweden for six months, where I've been sort of living on and off for a long time, and I'll tell you about later. Yes. But um, then I came back, and I was looking for a proper, at least a sublet, and I found things, but there was always something wrong with it or whatever, and while I was looking, I was staying with a friend, um, and, you know, we got along. It was fun to stay there. I was staying in her daughter's room, her daughter's at college. You know, and we got along great. It was fun. And she just said, oh, I'll just stay here. And I said, oh, okay. So I'm still there. And How long has it been? Uh, like six months. And she's cool with it? <laughs> They're yeah. all cool with it? We got along great. Um, but I'm I'm going back to Sweden again in a month or so. so. Now, how does it feel to, where do you, wait, first of all, where have you, where have you put all your things? Or have you really All my things are everything? in my friend Kathy's garage and attic in New Jersey. And I'm very lucky. Because I'm not paying storage. So I feel very free for several reasons. So One of them is that I, all my stuff is there, and I'm not, at least for now, I'm not worried about it. Yes. And then I have cats, unfortunately, which I'm not even a cat person. I, I don't know how it happened. But anyway, I have these cats that a friend in Sweden is taking care of this winter, so I don't have the cats. So, and I don't, I'm living out of a couple of suitcases. I was lucky, though, if I didn't have, I, I sublet a studio to work in because I still work you know, on a desk, an old-fashioned way with paper. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so I did sublet a studio, and if I didn't have that, I'd be in big trouble. So that's the – and when I come back from Sweden in the fall, I'll probably look for something else to buy in New York because I still like New York. Go now, figure. Um, do you feel that you're bringing a different mentality in your work, not having all of the – ownership and all of the stuff and everything around you that's yours and being in the, the whole Lori world, so to speak? Um, possibly, but I think it was already there. I've always, you know, I've lived in France and I've lived in Italy and in Sweden and, you know, worked all over the world and, and I love traveling and, and I've always sort of had that nomadic attitude. Now, I want to ask you about your disdain for fine art. I want to talk to you about Sweden. We also have a caller on the line, but before, let, let's just talk about your disdain for art. Let's, let's, let's get into that one. Well, I, I want to correct. I mean, I love, what I love is Matisse and Picasso and things and um, many, many artists, but most of them, if not all of them, are dead and long dead. And when I go, if you want to make me really mad, take me to Chelsea and look at the galleries there because I'll look around I find absolutely nothing to admire or love. Uh, I, I very rarely can 
this young artist draw. Um, there was a show at the new museum, which I thought was just, well, um, horrible. Really? It was, yeah, it was called, um, or maybe it's still there, and maybe I'll get some hate mail, but um, it was seemed to be a celebration of the unskilled, like on purpose. It was called Unmonumental, and I think that means ungood. Uh-huh. I'm not really sure, but I like drawing. I like people that can draw and make beautiful things, and um, I look for beauty and when I go to Chelsea I see it but it's more like this like, oh my god look at that window treatment <gasps> I love that door handle look at that light fixture it's fantastic <laughs> you know it's like anything in those beautiful white rooms you know will the spotlight on them will look fantastic you know and I think it's just when I wrote an article which nobody will publish but I wrote an article about the new museum show and I said it's just you know the emperor's new clothes but without the emperor I mean, there's nothing there. So I, I feel like a lot of contemporary art, not all, of course there are exceptions, but a lot of contemporary art is just gimmicky and, you know, boring and bad. You know, those videos that go on and on. Like a video in an art museum, like if it, it seems to me, if it's boring, it's art. And if it's good, it's a movie, you know. <laughs> right. And I love movies. <laughs> right. You know, uh, I like to be told a story. I like things to be funny. I like things to be uplifting. So, so how so would you, when you say that you like things that are beautiful, how would you define beautiful, if that's possible to answer? Well, I went, I was teaching at MICA in, in Baltimore. I taught my workshop there recently, and I went to the Baltimore Museum of Art, and they had the most beautiful Matisses I have ever seen because of the uh, Clarabelle and Etta Cohn that started collecting, and they started Gertrude Stein collecting and so forth. So they had... The, my favorite Matisse's, I was just in awe. I went there every day, and they had beautiful things by Jean Arp. And, you know, there's a, I love Stuart Davis. I mean, there's many, many artists I admire. Um, but, you know, I just, I really can't think of anybody that's 30 or 40 or 50 or working now that I feel that way about. Well, I, I read that... Uh after taking your workshop at MICA, Ellen Lupton said that the experience of taking the workshop loosened up her uptight intellectual mindset like nothing else. So I want to talk to you about that. But first, let's take our caller. Gregory, Gregory, are you on the line? I'm here. Oh, thank you for waiting. It's thank okay. you for calling I Design Matters. Hi, Lori. Hello. Okay, there are a couple of things I just have to say right now. First of all, thank you so much for saying that you love the beauty and you love Picasso and Matisse because I spent all of my life feeling like such a peasant and such a <laughs> such a an un an unworthy person to admire art when I say I love Renoir because yeah. everybody sort of looks at you like you're you're a philistine. And you know, I, I'm glad you said it because once I saw a painting by Renoir called The Wave, which is a very, very beautiful and sort of un-Renoir-like painting. And it was just a very visceral response I had. It was something that I thought was very beautiful. And then years later, I was in the Guggenheim, which I disliked. I get motion sickness in there. But in their little impressionist gallery, I kept passing these small drawings that were very detailed and very beautiful. And I thought, God, they're really pretty. They're really pretty. And they were Renoir. They were studies when he was a student. So... I'm so glad you said it because it made me feel a lot better because those galleries in Chelsea, I don't understand any of it. And I don't think it's beautiful. Okay. Well, the I, other thing I oh. love is the title of your book. I agree with Debbie. I, I, I can't tell you how on target that is to me. I think every pop culture magazine you look at probably just has backed this up. Um, all these sort of talentless, honorless people um, must have some sense of self-esteem for a false reason because they keep the 
succeeding in the worldly sense. And my question is, do you, do you think there's a difference between self-esteem and self-confidence? Oh, definitely, yeah. Um, I think self-esteem, well, I don't have the, you know, the definition in front of me, but I always thought of self-esteem as being, you know, uh, how you regard yourself and confidence is more have, having to do with how you act. Um, uh, do you think maybe, you need one to have the other or not? Oh, no. I think yeah. a lot of people act confident that don't have self-esteem and probably the other way around. I mean, I'm not exactly an expert on it. That was another thing. I just think it's funny. I don't really take anything that I do very seriously. And the title of that book, I just it was something that I thought of, you know, 20 years ago. I make up titles. This, it has to do with the way I do my workshop. It's like I make stuff up and then figure out an excuse to use it. So that <laughs> title I thought of way before I made the book. I just thought it was a funny thing that I thought. So then I made the book later. I think well, that it, it, however you came about it, really, I think it's very apt. Certainly it applies today. I, I, I can't even... Uh imagine how more perfect and succinct that is. So everything you've been saying has just been a delight to hear. Well, thank I'm you. I'm to read your book. Thank you very much. Thank you for calling, Gregory. So, so Lori, why do you consider yourself to be the world's most commercial artist? That's something that's in your official bio. And, and what do you mean by that? Well, that is just a joke, too. <laughs> um, okay. And I, mu- I have to, to say one thing. I really hate Renoir. But anyway, um, I um, am not the world's most commercial artist. I am probably the world's least commercial artist. It's just that I love the term commercial artist because it implies this sort of fight. It's like a non sequitur. Well, I'm not sure if it's a non sequitur or an oxymoron, but we don't have to get into that now. But commercial on the one hand and artist on the other, and they're kind of, you know, you can't see this, but I'm sort of, bang my fists together like this. They're fighting each other um, in one word, you know, or in one, you know, job, commercial artist, artist commercial, you know. It's like, oh, what am I? You know, I sort of like that fight, and that's what I've been doing all the time. And, in fact, um, I always think about, there's a really good designer called Yolanda Cuomo, and she had a sign, I believe, I hope I get this right, but I think she had a sign in her studio that said, for love or money, there is no in-between. And that's exactly right, and it's what I'm not able to do. I cannot separate those things. So in all my commercial jobs, I get really emotionally involved, and I feel and think like an artist, and it's completely inappropriate. So commercial art is really a joke, too, because I'm not. I'm not commercial. James Victoria said that, there are two types of jobs. There are the love jobs, the the, the, the jobs for the money jobs, mm-hmm. and the God jobs. And the God jobs are the jobs that you do for love. Right. And the other jobs you just have to do for money. So do you find that you cannot uh, separate the two? You have to? No, everything? I have a large metal plate in my head. Mm. I, ha- I have a problem. Okay. Because every job, to me, it's, it's like I'm in love. Oh, my God. Um I'm so thrilled. Lori Rosenwald has a chance to express herself. You know, no matter how silly a job it is, um, I feel like that. And then I do a million times more things than I have to do. And very often it is, I think it is, pearls before swine. But the, but the upside of that is that everything I do, whether they publish it or not, is fun to do. And I'm proud of it. So there isn't like this stuff in the closet that I wouldn't show anybody that I just did for money, which explains why I don't have a lot of money. But um, 
I do have fun. I mean, I feel more creatively fulfilled than some people are. Did you always want to be a designer? Is that something you always knew? No. Um, I think, you know, because of my background, I was really, you know, going to be an artist. But like I said before, I was sort of anti-be an artist. So designer seemed like a more normal. I wanted to be normal more than anything else. Yeah. It seemed like a more normal thing to be than an artist is. And do you consider yourself in any way normal now? No. Do you want to still be normal I now? still really want to be normal. What do you consider to be normal? <laughs> well, you know, I, I had this fantasy, you know, like a big family, brothers and sisters, and, you know, all sitting down to dinner together. And, you know, I, I, I don't know how much I want to get in my childhood, but suffice it to say that I sort of... I wasn't even raised by wolves. I sort of brought myself up. Mm-hmm. You know, there was like nobody minding the store since a very early age. I had total freedom and nobody told me what to do, which is not a good thing. Well, especially you grew up, you're a native New Yorker, so you oh, yeah. had the, the city as free reign. It was, that was your playground? Something like that, yes. Now, I read that when you were young, when you were asked what you wanted, when you grew up, you said a sibling. I did. Oh, well, too late for that. So, so you're an only child. I am. But you still have the fantasy of having lots of brothers and sisters, and, <laughs> well, and that's normal to you. I have to tell you, I found this, um, when I was moving, uh, I found this stuff from my really young childhood when I was like four or something. I made this book. I made. I guess it was my first book, and it was called The McMacks. There was a family called The McMacks. Wow. <laughs> M-C-M-A-C. And they were a big family sitting around the table, and I think they must be, like, extra Scottish or something. Um, It just was sort of the opposite of me living alone with this, you know, completely wackadoodle mother. So, it, yeah, and then that was, it's something that I think also when you work in design, you're working with other people. Even though I work alone, Mm -hmm. it involves other people more usually more than being a painter does. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like that. Laurie, we have another caller. Uh-oh. Uh, we have Isabel from New York. Isabel, thank you for calling Design Matters. Hi, Laurie. Hi, Debbie. Hello. Hello. Uh, Laurie, <coughs> Debbie mentioned in her monologue that she experienced regret, like regret at never getting to that girl on time with her basket of bakery goods and so on. And it really stood out in her memory, obviously, because she mentioned it in her monologue. Have you ever, has anything really ever stood out to you and you regretted something that you did or did not do personally or professionally? Non, je ne regrette rien. I really don't. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I know you speak Swedish, but I didn't know about the uh, the French. Um, no, I don't, I really don't. Um, no. It's well, on the flip side of that, is there something that is on your absolute wish list that you a project you'd like to do or a collaboration with somebody or oh, a that's personal thing that you'd like to accomplish? Oh yeah, I want. I mean, I'd love to get. Um, it, that's another fantasy that you know I would get these like big, exciting, fun commissions to do. You know, really public, great things that everybody will notice and admire. It hasn't happened yet. Aside from your books that are here. No, no, but those are not commissions. Those are things I just do. Um, So I still would love that. I do like collaborating with people. I don't have a very clear idea of what those jobs are, but I know that other people get them, and maybe one day I will too. (laughs) Well, good luck with that. Thank you. Thanks for calling, Isabel. 
Lori, we have to take a break. We'll take a short break. I'd like to let everybody know that they're listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is designer, writer, and illustrator Lori Rosenwald. We'll be right back with our broadcast after these messages, so please don't go away. Stocks, bonds, 401ks, investments, refinancing. We can help you. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790, 866-472-5790. Voice America Business. Hi, this is Greg Fraley. I'm the author of Jack's Notebook, which is a business novel about creative problem solving. And I'm here to talk to you about something very creative, which is Fuse. Fuse is the annual event for design and culture, brand identity, and packaging. Fuse is taking place April 13th through 16th at Chelsea Pierce in New York, and it's been the top destination for corporate superstars and design legends for over 10 years. Fuse delivers phenomenal experiences, thought-provoking ideas, and brilliant speakers. Be inspired by industry gurus like Malcolm Gladwell, a writer on science, culture, and human behavior, Peter Thum, who is the founder of Ethos Water, Kate Betts, editor at Time, Style, and Design, Erwin Simon, CEO of the Haines Celestial Group, and Stefan Sagemeister, one of today's most important designers. Register today at www.designmattersfuse.com and receive a 20% discount courtesy of Debbie Millman and the Design Matters Show. I hope to see you there. The bottom line in business, Voice America Business. We're back with Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you have a question for Debbie, feel free to call us at 866-472-5790. Once again, here's the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Welcome back. It is 3.36 Eastern Time, and you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I'm your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is the lovely, funny, brilliant designer, writer, and illustrator, Lori Rosenwald. If you'd like to join our conversation, if you have a question for Lori, our phone lines are now open. You can call 1-866-472-5790. And Lori, before the break, I was uh, talking about asking you lots of questions about this workshop that I've been hearing so much about, How to mis- Make Mistakes on Purpose. And it's, it's an incredibly popular workshop, and you've described it as follows. It's not what you think it is. It's not good to describe it because people shouldn't know what to expect. You've taught it all over the world, from Stockholm to Starbucks. It was a big hit at the AIGA Next conference last year where over 200 people took part. But it's also not for designers only. Anybody can do it. And apparently the people that hold the workshop could know about it, but not the participants or anybody else. You make them swear the omerta, the mafia code of silence, after people take part in it. So tell us everything you can. Okay. <laughs> everything um, you can. I will I will tell you this much. It has to do with, I always talk about um, the guy that discovered Velcro. He, you know, went walking in the woods 
in Switzerland with his dog, and I always imagined he was wearing corduroy pants. Anyway, whatever kind of pants <laughs> he was wearing, um, he got burrs stuck on his pants. And then he looked at them, and he said, oh, we stuck them together. He said, oh, what could this be? And then he invented Velcro. But he didn't sit down at a paper and go, what this world needs is a new way to stick stuff together, and I'm going to do that. I'm going to be creative, and I'm going to invent that. And it's a very different way of living and doing things. So what we do in the workshop, what I can divulge, is that um, I create an atmosphere of chaos where stuff happens, like if you think about the birds getting stuck on the pants, um, it's an opportunity to do stuff first, make stuff, have things happen, and then ask the big question, what could this be? So it's sort of the opposite of problem solving, which is what everybody does, including me, including everybody, um, you know, th 364 days a year. This is one day where you're sort of living backwards and... You know, you're saying, oh, this thing is already here, or what's this? So what could this be? And thinking of new things and inventing things in that sort of backwards way. Um, and, you know, when I do it for design schools, it's one way. When I do it for Starbucks or something, some other kind of company, um, I sort of tailor it to whoever's taking the workshop. And it can be very different. It could be a couple days. It could be a few hours. You know, I've done it all sorts of different ways for all sorts of different kinds of people. But it's just really, really fun is the main thing. It's like we play loud music, and it's fun, and it's chaotic, and very good things come out of it. And I hate it when people think, um, oh, it's about embracing your mistakes, and yes, blah, blah, blah. everybody knows that you should embrace your mistakes. It isn't really that. It's more like we are literally making mistakes and accidents and then saying, what could this be? Um, it's like in my children's book, I mean, as an illustrator, I, I do it in a certain way. Um, in my children's book, I had to draw a canary. So like everybody else, I think, in the world, I went to Google Images and pressed one button, and in two seconds I had a thousand million canaries. Mm -hmm. But like most people don't do, I didn't then draw the canary. I looked at the canaries, and then I sort of forgot about it, and then I found something on my desk that didn't look anything like a canary, and then I stuck some legs on it, a beak, and an eyeball, and I colored it yellow. And you better believe it's a bleeping canary. You can say anything you want. We are. It's a fucking canary. Okay. <laughs> and, you know, you, you put the word canary in 800-point type next to it, and that really helps, too. Oh, I was thinking you were going to say you put the word fucking in 800-point. No, no, no. It's a children's book. <laughs> no, it's a nice children's book. So I, I, from what I understand, you teach people to work quickly, to work without thinking. How do you do that? Well, um, you, I don't think you really have to teach, I don't think I really teach very much. It's more like I create an atmosphere where, uh, you know, it's uh, willy-nilly. I mean, I, I learned how to say willy-nilly in Latin, which is nolens volens. I don't know, I love that. Um, Why did you learn that? What Because you... there's a great book... Um, I think it's Henry Beard that it's called Latin for All Occasions, one oh. of my favorite books. But um, anyway, Willie Nelly is, is, is a good description of what I do. Um, I really can't call it teaching. It's more like an experience that I uh, make ha happen and let people experience. I don't really explain it. And the whole thing about Omer Tan being secret about it, um, there's a good reason for that. 
because it's about surprises. People should be surprised. Mm -hmm. They can know, oh, I'm going to take a workshop called How to Make Mistakes on Purpose. And my friend said it was, you can say after you take the workshop, oh, it was great. It was fun. I loved it. Or you can say it sucked. It was stupid. I hated it. But I just don't want people to say what happened in that room. Right. Okay, what it was. Because I want people to show up for it and not have any idea what happens next. And that's, that's a good thing. Now, Jen, my, my trusty researcher who can probably find almost anything on anybody, came up with uh, some information about the workshop, just about some of your mantras. And I, I'll ask if it's okay if I could say those on the air. Um, well, yes and no. I'm writing you a note, and I'm going to say, um, I'm writing Debbie a note. Just a minute. <laughs> Not if it involves. No. No, it doesn't. Not okay, at all. Okay. Okay. Good. That's, so, that's the only thing they shouldn't know. Okay. Sorry about that. So, so some of the mantras. Um, quick and sloppy. Tell us about that. Well, I, you know, myself, that, that's sort of the way that I work. Um, I'm, I'm too, when I'm really trying hard, I mean, I think that there's, a component that that works for everything in life. When, when you really, really want something bad, and when you're trying very hard to be good, um, and you're focusing and concentrating, it's like I think it's a recipe for disaster. I think I think it's the kiss of death. So, quick and sloppy. It's like a way of um, being extremely casual about what you're doing and not caring. But it's very hard to pretend you don't care about things you really care about. But I think that. It works in a lot of situations um, if you can manage it to, it's sort of like um, when a magician does a, a trick, mm -hmm. right, um, they're all focused on, a, you know, everybody's looking at this thing they're doing with their hands, but it's really happening like three feet away. Right. Right. It's yeah. called misdirection, right? Mm -hmm. So what I do is all about that because instead of focusing and trying to do a good thing, um, you're doing a whole bunch of bad things or not um, not trying mm -hmm. anymore, you know. And that's why I think a lot of good things happen in the workshop because we get away from trying to be good. Mm. Yeah, that's a lifelong... It's so interesting because on the one hand, I feel like I've spent a lifetime trying to be good and then I also try to not be good so that I'm better. And it's tough. It's a tough thing. Um, for people that want more information, I know that you're working on a website, mistakesonpurpose.com. Is that ready for people to start looking at? Yes. It's just, right now, it's just a page, or you can go to rosenworld.com, and there's a page about it there. Um, and I have an email for it called oops at mistakesonpurpose.com. Oops at mistakesonpurpose.com. Now, when people do go to rosenworld.com, they will find not only a portfolio that includes paintings, illustrations, and design work, but they'll also find some wonderful essays that you've written. You do quite a lot of writing. They are hysterically funny. You wrote a piece about Sweden called Enormous Blonde, Herring-Scented, Nauseatingly Fair-Minded Nymphomaniacs in Clogs. That's Are you talking right. about yourself? <laughs> no. I'm not an infomaniac. 
<laughs> so um, I know this is this is one of the lines from from one of the pieces. If you're from Topeka, you can go to Kansas City. If you're from Kansas City, you can go to Chicago. If you're from Chicago, you can go to New York. But if you're from Manhattan, where do you go? Well, by the time I was 35, I had to go to Sweden just to calm down. You now spend half of the year in Sweden, and you write you're writing about Sweden. You speak fluent Swedish. Um, why Sweden? Ingen aning. No, I, I, I don't speak fluent. I speak okay Swedish. Um, it was, again, like a lot of things that surrounded us, a real coinky-dink. Mm-hmm. It was not something I planned at all. Um, I happened to, I mean, I used to be married with a Swedish guy. I had been there a lot, um, but that was a long time ago, and then... I was looking for an artist studio, and through a series of coincidences, I found one in Sweden, and it was great, and I just kept coming back because I like it. Mm-hmm. And there's really no other story. I mean, I think some people have a, you know, weekend place in the upstate New York, and <laughs> right. I'm Sweden. You know, it's like, it's more for me, it's more like half and half, but I still live in New York. I hate it when I go to a party, and I'll see a friend, and they go, oh, I thought you moved to Sweden, and I didn't move to Sweden. I go there maybe four months a year or something like right. that in the summer, spring time. I'm no fool. Well, this is, a, this is a paragraph from your piece. Even after years of psychotherapy, my most burning issue is a complete lack of patience. Seemingly, Sweden has been designed especially to help me learn this virtue. There are not enough people in Sweden. Even at fancy restaurants, some element, some element is always self-service. It's not uncommon to clear one's own table. The salad, bread, and water are on the sideboard. Help yourself. No, help me, as you write. So um, how much time do you spend writing? Is it something that you do every day? Is it something that you do when the muse strikes? Um, I write a lot. Um, I can write, but I can't type. So all the stories that are on there are things I worked on for months and months. It's sort of embarrassing how long I can work on my books or work on an essay. I get completely caught up in things and get out of control and carried away with everything I do, particularly the writing. I write over and over and over a very short piece. Um, And you do it all by hand. No, no, no. I, I type it, but... You know, I have plenty of time to type a small essay. My problem is with emails that people are, you know, they, they use it instead of the phone, blah, 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 you know, and I can't do that. It's not fun for me. So that's a problem. People send me long emails, and I say, nice to hear from you, Laurie, you know, as oh, an answer. Yeah. Um, but about the writing, yeah, I love to write, and you can read some of the stories on my site, and I've wrote written stuff for communication arts a little bit and I always write stories and send them to New Yorker because that's my holy grail and I'm part of a Facebook community called The New Yorker is My Bible Mm. and if I miss a week I freak out anyway I've been reading it since I was about 12 and if I get a story into Shouts and Murmurs then I can die happy I'll put it that way but you've been published in The New Yorker as an illustrator and that's not good enough? no how did you feel? (laughs) (laughs) that was easy (laughs) How did you feel? First of all, how long did it take you after submitting work to be able to get published in The New Yorker? Um, You know, I don't even remember how it happened, but I've been drawing for them since the 80s. But it's very inconsistent. Sometimes I'll draw a lot of stuff for them for years, and then I don't for five years, and I do for a month. You know, it's very on and off with them. But Mm -hmm. I love working for them, Um, you know, no matter what. I mean, I would 
practically pay them to do a stamp size illustration with my name in the gutter and two-point type because I revere the New Yorker so much. I just interviewed some of the art directors and art editors there uh, for a short film they're going to show at the Icon Illustration Conference. Mm -hmm. And just to be up there and talk to those brilliant people was, I mean, I'm, I'm, I sound fawning, but it is how I feel. I just love it. Why, I read why, it. Why do you like it so much? What about it? Because it's what great it, writing. And, mm -hmm. and it's really the only place I can think of that publishes great humor for humor's sake. You know, if you write a humor piece about travel, you send it to a travel magazine, they want you to talk about hotels and restaurants and all that stuff. And I'm not interested in that. I just want to make people laugh. And so when you got your first accepted piece, what did you do? You mean well, drawing? You, your first accepted drawing for the New Yorker. When was it? What was it? And what did you do when you I found out? I don't remember what it was. I'm really sorry. I don't. See, that's when you know you're a success, when you don't even remember the first time you had something published in the New Yorker. Oh. I mean, let's, let's, let's call a spade a spade. Okay. Well, I, I, I don't remember. Okay. It was so long ago. What was your, what's your most favorite piece that you've published? Um, I think I did something that I really liked. Um, Something about sugar that was kind of fun. Um, I like to do portraits, so some of the portraits are good. I think. I think you know, but what do I know? So, getting back to, to some of your writing, I love the titles of your essays. Um, so I already talked about enormous blonde herring scented, nauseatingly fair-minded nymphomaniac and clogs. You also have mutant bastard yucky colors of the apocalypse. Right. And uh, what what provoked that piece? The mutant bastard yucky colors, of course. And so, what do you mean by that? Well, there's kind of um, there's certain families of colors that started popping up in the early '80s and. Um, in the piece, I say perhaps it's Michael Graves' fault, but I shouldn't put it all on him. I really don't know whose fault it is. And it's just colors started happening, especially in places like hotels and airports and big public places that were sort of like an off-mauve or a grayish pink or, you know, these sort of off-greens, grayish-green, everything with gray in it. And, mm. you know, I like... Putty. Exactly. And then there was sort of the Adobe Putty family and, you know, what uh, Douglas Copeland calls the veal color of most. I see you over there, you have a veal colored uh, printer. You know, yes. a lot of computers are mm. in the veal department. Before, Especially even yummy. Macs, before yeah. they came out with the iMac, they were veal colored originally. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm not so crazy. I like real colors. You know, hello, blue, how are you? You know, kind of thing. I Red. What's your favorite color? <laughs> I like a very orange, I like a sort of a tomato soup kind of color, like orangey red, mm -hmm. vermilion. I think that's my fave. So let's talk about your book, your upcoming book, All the Wrong People Have Self-Esteem. Yes, let's. And the uh, subtitle to the book is, is, is that it's an inappropriate book for young ladies. So what do you mean by that? And can you tell us more about what is inside the book? Um, we've actually changed the subtitle to An Inappropriate Book for Young Ladies or, frankly, anybody else. <laughs> because some of the um, marketing people, I guess, that saw it, the publisher is Bloomsbury. And some of the people, they went to a meeting and some people said, well, this could also be for adults. So, you know, it was designed to be for teenage girls. But the more I worked on it, it seemed to branch out into, you know, all kinds of things. But um, it's it's got stories, it's got a lot of things that, well, I, 
I try not to tell people how to think or how to feel because I really hate things like that. In fact, I saw, this is a perfect example, I saw, I don't know if it was J. Crew or one of those stores, but I was walking down Broadway and there's a store and it had, you know, they were selling jeans and shirts or whatever. There was a big sign that says, you know, do, do something once a day that scares you. And it's like, who are you to tell me that? And do you do that? And what does that have to do with polo shirts? You know, it's like there's so much of that in the world. Mm-hmm. So this is kind of a cynical look at some of these things. Um, you know, it's about getting kicked out of yoga class. And, you know, <laughs> How did I don't you get kicked out of yoga class. Well, I couldn't stop laughing. I was out of control. Why? <laughs> because the teacher, um, on, when I, this was at this fancy spa I went to, and um, they had like a, there was a pink Kleenex and a towel and a blanket in front of everybody in the, in the class. And so they turned the lights down real low, and the teacher said, now, everybody, roll up your blankets. And it was sort of big, heavy wool blankets, so we were all like holding them in half, and everybody, and she sort of, she had closed her eyes, and then she sort of opened her, and she said, I said towels, and then I said, you said blanket, and then I started cracking up, and I had to leave. She said, I think there are some people that really shouldn't be here right now. <gasps> you got kicked She out. threw me out. You got I was thrown out of RISD graphic design department, too. Well, I know that you also didn't get in the first time you applied. No, I never found out why, though. But then you applied again. So I you did. Had then I got in. Right. You got in, and then yeah. you got kicked out. I did. So you got rejected? Not of the whole school, but I... I was went into graphic design when I came back because I love typography and after a few months it was at that time it was the seventies and it was what I call the Swiss Miss style. It was all grids and grainy black and white photographs and you could only use universe and you know, it was boring and um so I, I missed drawing. So I went into illustration and there was not a good teacher and it was a bad situation and I didn't like it. So I wanted to come back to graphic design. So I saw the head of the department, I said I wanted to come back and he said, Well you have to take another year now because I'd missed like half a semester. I said, I can't do that. You know, I can't afford to do that. And so I said, it's not like engineering, like because I missed a month of graphic design, like a bridge is going to fall on somebody's (laughs) head. It's just design. And that was the nail in the coffin. And he said, well, there you can't come back at all. So I went into painting, where they didn't really care what you did. Wow. And it was great, because I got got the education I Mm -hmm. needed. I took electives in design a little bit, and... A little illustration, a little painting, and I ha- and I found some great teachers there too. Well, you, this is something funny that I that I read that you said. You said, frankly, I think anybody with good taste, common sense, drawing skills, and a Mac can be an illustrator or designer. And illustration is just drawing with intelligence to someone else's specifications. Yeah. So, so what do you like most about being a, a designer and an illustrator? What is it that that keeps you doing this? Um. Well, I mean, I've been doing this since I was born. You know, the the people that do what we do are the ones that kept drawing. You know, a lot of people, kids, they stop drawing when they're five and somebody says, oh, that doesn't look like a truck or whatever. And they, oh, no, and then they stop. But we kept drawing, and that's basically it. You know, for me, it's like breathing, I suppose. I just, I love to draw, and I feel very, very fortunate that I can make some kind of a living drawing because it's totally fun and doing creative things and writing and doing books and you know it's it's bloody wonderful i love it well thank i'm you a lucky for, girl thank you for making our world more funny more beautiful and more laurie-esque 
And my uh, pleasure. Unfortunately, we've come to the end of the show, but I urge people to go to rosenwall.com. No, sorry, rosenworld. World, rosenworld.com. That's Do you know favorite. what rosenwall.com is? Um, I actually, I think it's a, is it an accounting firm? No, it's a French gynecology oh. association. <laughs> Way off on that Rosenwald. one. Rosenworld. <laughs> Rosenworld.com or... Um, our, the other site that you can go to is making is mistakesonpurpose.com, and her books can be found on Amazon. Her new book, All the Wrong People Have Self-Esteem, will be out at the end of the year. We've come to the end of Design Matters today. I'd like to thank very much Lori Rosenwald for being on the show. I'd also like to thank our sponsor, Adobe. I'd like to give a very special thanks to Brian, Jeff, and Ruben at Voice America. Lisa Grant and Jen Simon at Sterling, and Edwin Rivera for all of their help. Joining me next week on Design Matters is web entrepreneur Jeffrey Zeldman. Thank you for listening, and please remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I am Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you next week. Voice America Business would like to thank you for tuning in for Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Be sure to listen every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time for another exciting hour of Design Matters. Right here on the bottom line in business talk. Voice America Business.